Welcome to Stupid Not Stupid. I'm Matt, joined by Jason, the co-host who's been the sole survivor of a statistically uncomfortable number of ill-fated expeditions. <laughs> you have no idea how true that is. <laughs> <laughs> how you doing, my friend? I'm doing very well. How about you? Good. So I think this is episode 26. I don't keep track because I don't have to do the music, so you have a better catalog than yeah, I do. You are correct. It is number 26. All right. Well, uh, it's actually the 27th theme, but we have one that I have not actually <laughs> got around using. The episode that shall never so, be released. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I figure that's been long enough that maybe we should plug the format of the show really quick for, for new listeners. Do you want to take that, Jason? Uh, no. Because <laughs> we have a format? <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a great encapsulation of the dichotomy of the arguments that's that right. happened here. So the thought is uh, with each episode, uh, Jason and I pick a topic or one is suggested to us by our uh, legion of fans. And we beat it to death like a horse with a stick until the uh, determination is made definitively. Stupid. Yeah, the We're only thing stupid. I would add to that is while drinking. While drinking, yeah. <laughs> uh, so speaking of that, another one of the traditions and a, a stalwart part of the format of the show is uh, we let our guests know uh, what we're drinking so they can join along at home and Right. Uh, and another important thing to keep in mind, you know, the, the origin of this podcast was at the beginning of the pandemic, we were bored out of our skulls and needed a place to drink in a basement and have an excuse to do it. So that's that we have kept that ethos throughout the entire, uh, what, close to two year we're run coming now. up on two years now. Yeah. yeah. Except now we're drinking in a PVC pipe uh, sound recording studio. Right. So. Yeah, yeah. In a garage instead <laughs> in a garage of a basement. garage instead of a basement. <laughs> so the, the meteoric rise continues. But yes, to keep the tradition alive, I am drinking... Actually, it's an excellent question because I just grabbed a bottle and put ice and poured into the bottle. Let me taste. Oh, <laughs> that is bar. definitely Bowman Brothers yet Bowman again. Bowman Brothers. Okay, which you're is welcome. Excellent. And I'm um, two fisting as always. <laughs> and this week, uh, it is yet another Flying Dog product because that's the only thing that 7-Eleven serves between <laughs> your house and mine that's worth drinking. Uh, but this this week, instead of the typical raging bitch, uh, for the for the purposes of this episode, I'm drinking the IPA. The truth. The truth. <laughs> this is kind of like uh, Jason definitely judges a book by its cover. Like yes. you didn't go for like taste or like profile or yeah. rating or reputation. It's just because it was applicable to the topic. Yeah, this exactly. The, the artwork was cool. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, on wine. I like the label, so I yeah. bought it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I'm joining you uh, consuming the truth. Usually I spit truth, but in this instance, I'm going to consume it. And uh, <laughs> I have a, a purpose rye, which we've talked about before, which was introduced to us and then subsequently left here uh, yes. by Dr. Newton. Yes. Um, so the purpose rye uh, bourbon from DC. Yeah. And for anybody, you know, just jumping onto this podcast new on this episode, which would be odd, but not implausible. Uh, we should also uh, highlight the fact that you need to go back and listen to all of the other episodes because we definitely build. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There are lots of inside jokes and, on mm -hmm. and ongoing yeah, concepts that build from the very first episode. Well, speaking of reoccurring segments, let's do one of our regulars, which is... Jason are stupid. You suck. So this is usually where uh, we got we recap or we circle back on uh, a previous episode and point out something that 
the other person said was stupid that we didn't catch them on at the time, but we definitely need to call them out on in the present. <laughs> and I was going to do that per usual, but we actually have, we've got some, uh, some fan mail this week, Jason, that does that all on its own. Wow, so we instead haven't of, had fan mail in forever. <laughs> I think it's that we haven't paid attention to the fan mail in oh, forever. Oh, that's true. I haven't checked it in probably, I don't know, eight or nine months. Well, yeah. <laughs> someone managed to get through through, the, through our social media. So I'm going to share the introductory note that they sent off the bat. And then uh, they have some problems with some of your arguments specifically. Oh, excellent. Um, and it's someone who went on a bit of a binge. Uh, and listen to all the episodes and had uh, points uh, on how you were stupid on most of them. Fantastic. I can't wait to tell them why they're so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not going to do all of them. So this shout out goes out to our newest super fan, Molly McDowell. So uh, this is the note Molly sent to our, our, she slid into our DMs here. Oh, I took some clients out to see properties this AM and I had on NPR. And then I turned on your show. The one I <laughs> Well, there was your first mistake. <laughs> they listened and both subscribed. It's a solid podcast. I'm surprised. <laughs> <laughs> We're surprised too, Molly. Yes. <laughs> that was not our intent from the beginning. Right? <laughs> so Molly Molly shared uh, uh, many critiques of your arguments, Jason, which makes her a lady <laughs> after my own heart. But she, she took exception with some points that you made in our most recent episode where we do We're Stupid because we, we don't do them on the episodes where we have guests because right. we, we wouldn't want to hurt our guests' feelings and have them right. not come back. And we're lazy. And, I mean, we're, yeah. and we're super lazy. But Molly makes the point that towards the end of the episode, uh, quote, he just rebutes these recordings and not very convincingly, but he never gives a plausible alternative explanation. And you know what, Molly? I think you, I think you're right. I think Molly's really embracing another longstanding and uh, repeated ethos on this podcast that, you know, lack of evidence or something that doesn't exist. The alternative then, in fact, must be true. And without a plausible counter explanation, Jason, my explanation must be correct. So I agree with Molly. <laughs> I actually wholly disagree with that. There were very, very lengthy uh, explanations as to why those recordings don't ring true, having to do with orbital dynamics and uh, and the way that they were they would have been recorded at that time period, and the fact that those sounds don't make any sense from from that aspect. But that's way outside of the scope of the expertise level that we deal with on this pod <laughs> this podcast. So Molly also made a point uh, to share with us that she listened to our Illuminati episode with Dr. Taylor Tots. Oh, I'm uh, so sorry for her. <laughs> in, in the car while she was driving. And uh, Molly thought my, uh, my joke about the V just being the top half of an X was hilarious. And she notes that uh, – and an X cut in half. That was hilarious. Jason didn't love it, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, you're definitely stupid, and that's what qualifies for uh, this week's worst stupid edition, Jason. I guess I'll take that one. <laughs> well, welcome to the show, Molly. We appreciate you. Um, so getting to this week, I want to, uh, as long as we're giving shout outs, I want to dedicate this episode to oh. someone, Jason. Sure. This, uh, this episode goes out to, and man, I don't know if she took his last name or not, but we're going to dedicate this one to who I'm the, someone I'm going to call, uh, Jocelyn Abraham, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the wife of the man whose bourbon we regularly drink because he gets drunk and accidentally leaves it here. Yes. Jocelyn is the, uh, the person who I originally went down the rabbit hole of our topic with today and uh have spent more time than i care to admit arguing in a hot tub with her uh over alcoholic beverages about what is stupid and not stupid <laughs> as it relates uh to the issue we're going to be looking at this <laughs> and the other thing i want to make sure that we uh get on the record because i'm getting a little worried about this too this is going to be what two out of our last three episodes where we really beat up on russia or the ussr i guess these are both uh, yeah, russia i'm comfortable with that you're comfortable <laughs> well just to be safe i i looked into it we don't have any subscribers 
in Russia. So we're, we should be safe. I don't think anyone's going to hear it who's going to have their feelings hurt. Um, so we're covered on the uh, we're covered uh, behind the Iron Curtain. But I do want to give a shout out if you're listening to whoever the individual is. You're not in Russia, but you're not that far away. Uh, whoever the uh, the uh, listener is in uh, in Brussels who went on a binge and downloaded every single episode and listened to them, send us a message, reach out, pick a topic, we'll have you on because uh, you're awesome. Really impressed. And second, we're really sorry. (laughs) (laughs) You're definitely not stupid, whoever you are. So uh, drop us a line, stupid, not stupid, 411 at gmail.com or uh, hit us on any of our social media accounts. And we want to hear from you. Yeah. Great. All right, Jason, here we go. We're going down. I, I, We've said this before. Yeah. This may be the most important topic this, this, <laughs> we've yeah, ever discussed. Yeah, if you discussed. only have to listen to one podcast, this, this might be the one. This is the one. And I don't even know what the topic is. The year. <laughs> the year is 1959, Jason. Okay. The place? Ural Technical State University in the Soviet Union. And I tried to figure out what the uh, mascot was for Ural Technical State University. So I could yell like, <laughs> I don't know, like, go sickles, go hammers or whatever. But it was uh, probably the concrete block in yeah. Bangman building. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I couldn't figure that out. So we don't get to we don't get to give a, uh, a shout out uh, to the mascot. But, <laughs> go mighty. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But, but this, this time and place is uh, the beginning of one of history's greatest mysteries, one of history's greatest unsolved mysteries or possibly solved we'll go through some of the uh some of the uh possibilities here possible explanations and um determine if they're stupid or not (laughs) 10 students originally set out from ural (laughs) okay so this is what's difficult it's not rural like it's a rural university it's the ural mountains right (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) not to be confused with like suburbia All right. Uh, you're winning so far. You're, you're ahead on the scoreboard <laughs> on this episode now. Um, ten students set out for a two-week trek to Mount Ordetan in the rural – in the rural – the Ural Mountains. <laughs> this is octopuses all over again. Um, and I don't want to no, – no spoilers here. Um, I don't want to uh, create too much of a sense of foreboding. But Jason, would you like to know what the local translation of Mount Ordetan is? Uh, in the dialect of the Monsi tribe, which is the tribe that lives at the foot of the mountain? Uh, so I took a couple of years of Russian in undergrad. I have no clue. The Mountain of the Dead. Nice. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a great place to, to plan yeah, an overland uh, Now I'm questioning expedition. why this isn't our Halloween episode. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. All right. Another uh, interesting fact about the Monsi tribe that, uh, that lives there um, and calls the Mountain of the Dead home. These are the same guys who... There's a hallucinogenic mushroom that grows in the area, but it's too potent for humans to ingest directly. Ooh, I so, like it already. <laughs> so they they feed the mushroom to reindeer that can process it, and then they drink the reindeer's urine in order to experience the uh, diluted effects. Okay, of the so I like it a little less now. Yeah. <laughs> Guess what? Jason's drink he's going to be promoting next week That's is. Right. <laughs> So the leader, the leader of uh, the expedition uh, that set out from Ural, yeah, Ural Technical State University is Igor Delaitov, the namesake of the pass that we're going to be discussing. What we're what we're talking about is known as the Delaitov Pass incident. It wasn't Ah. named for him before the incident, but it is officially named 
for him after the incident, which I find curious. I do too, because generally speaking, things are named after you either because something great happened or something horrible happened. Yeah, right. (laughs) So uh, Igor is a a 23-year-old radio engineering student at at Ural State, and he he and his nine companions were, and I don't really know what this means or what it qualifies you as, they were uh, grade two hikers all with ski expedition experience and at the end of this uh trek that they had planned and mapped out and was sanctioned by the university and had been like filed with like the explorers club like these kind of things that used to exist back in the back in the day they would return from the trek as grade three hikers and over country ski qualified experts i guess you know as mark twain used to say you know uh good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment so one would assume if you survive this trek you get a, an upgrade. And yeah. if you don't, well, you know, that was just bad judgment. You, you right? get a posthumous <laughs> upgrade. <laughs> so they begin their trek on January 27th, and they begin uh, their journey towards the mountain. The first kind of uh, point of interest here that we need to stop and recognize, and this is going to be important when we discuss some of the theories about the uh, the ultimate outcome and the reasons behind the eventual, spoiler alert, demise of the entire party. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> right. Is that one of their number, Yuri Yudin, who suffered allegedly from several health ailments, including rheumatism and is this Yuri Yudin from the the Udal Mountains? <laughs> I think that was he was the mascot actually. So uh, so Yuri allegedly suffers from rheumatism and congenital heart defects, which makes me suspicious off the bat. So you have rheumatism and a congenital heart defect, but you're a grade two like overland explorer trying to go on an extremely difficult expedition in the middle of winter. See, I think it's hysterical that you find that suspect because that to me is like the most a prototypical Soviet explanation I've ever heard of anything. Like that makes perfect sense to me. Well, uh, Yuri actually is technically the sole survivor of the expedition because at the last stop before they head off, headed out into the most remote portion of their leg, which is the final stretch between uh, the last village that they stopped at and uh, the mountain of the dead. Uh, <laughs> Yuri uh, decided to stop due to knee and joint pain um, that he claimed uh, left him unable to continue on the trek. So he stayed behind in the last village and eventually returned back to Ural State. And well, Yuri becomes one of the becomes so, the sole survivor. Okay. Well, first of all, let me ask: How far had they gone, and how far were they going after this? So, from what I uh, saw on the map, see, the, this is the thing that's interesting. So there's geography, and then there's how much time it took to travel more difficult terrain the further sure. you got into it. So geographically, they've gone oh, I about- I you going to say, there's geography and then there's Soviet geography. <laughs> <laughs> so I believe from what I'm recalling from the, the map, Yuri made it about 60% of the way, but he hadn't covered even the most difficult terrain yet. The okay. most difficult terrain is still to come. They're, they were remote. They were in the wilderness at this point, but they weren't in the sticks like they were about to be. One of the most remote and isolated places on earth was right, their this destination. this hike was like hundreds of kilometers, right? It was a two-week hike. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two yeah. weeks. So if that guy got like a week and a half in and went, guys, we're getting into the tough part. I can't make it. That actually seems like a reasonable, like either I'm going to go with you and you guys are going to have to carry me out or I'm, I'm going to tap out. Mm-hmm. Like, a, good, a good conspiracy, Jason, is only as good as the sum of its parts. So <laughs> on its own, maybe you're correct. But I think there's more to this mystery that we okay. need to unravel. Okay. So on, we know for sure that the party leaves the village and leaves Yuri behind on January 27th. The trek continues innocuously through the wilderness. And we actually have a pretty good idea of the things that happened between leaving the village and the final camp. 
the reason that we have such a good idea is that one, the expedition started a newspaper. Um, they basically kept an official journal, but published it in the form of a newspaper by hand and then passed it around as like a pastime. And it was like a fun thing the group did. So they cataloged like all the things they were doing and seeing in the places they were going, but in like kind of an ironic way. And a lot of that writing survived and was recovered. So we got information from that. So that's fascinating in and of itself. Like I was asking about how arduous this journey was, like nobody hiking, say, Mount Kilimanjaro. <laughs> That's a very insider joke for the, the person you dedicated this episode to. Yeah, nobody hiking that kind of a mountain, nobody going up Everest is keeping a newspaper that they pass around, mm -hmm. right? Like those well, are. But they haven't got to the mountain yet. They're hiking through the wilderness on the way to the mountain at this point. Okay. So they're not like, you know, free climbing an ice wall and stopping to uh, register in the opinion section of political endorsement. Right. 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 Yeah. <laughs> okay. So the. In addition to the newspaper, they also had a camera and the camera took, so far as we're able to tell that have been recovered, 33 photos. There are 33 photographs that were taken over the breadth of the expedition that were recovered. Maybe there are other photos we don't know about or weren't recovered or were destroyed or stolen perhaps. Sure. But there are 33 photos that were recovered. So this is how well, we understand what happened in the interim period. For those of you who weren't alive in 1959, let me explain how those cameras actually worked. Yeah. <laughs> 33 photos was a huge amount of film right. for a camera unless it was a jot, like a, a backpack size right. camera. So like until the 1990s, like getting more than 24 shots off of a single camera, that was a big deal. Pretty good. Right. Right. Okay. So we know that between the 27th and the 31st, it's everything that you'd expect. It doesn't seem like, it's not like a Blair Witch situation. They're not lost. The, the map hasn't gone missing. There's no infighting in the group. By um, the, the way, I love the fact that you didn't dispute the fact that I was alive in the 19, in 1959. <laughs> Anyways, go ahead. Also important to note, a lot of the folks who have really dug into this and done a ton of research have all gone out of their way to point out there was also no kind of like jealousy or infighting because this is a um there are women and men uh, as part of the expedition so there are female and male so there's no no one's coupled up no one's fighting there's nothing like that going on that would lay the groundwork for something insidious right that would typical university students yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so here's what we know about the last day of the expedition the group arrive at the end the edge of a highland area and they begin to prepare, prepare for climbing the next day so they've kind of reached the foot of the mountain they know that they're not hiking anymore they're going to be climbing so they decide to set up camp and rest up for the next morning in a wooded valley they right below where they ended up setting their camp they cached a bunch of their supplies so you don't want to carry everything up the mountain you leave the stuff you need for the return trip at the bottom so you can grab it on your way back from what we can tell from what was forensically pieced together later it looked like they planned to get over the pass and make camp the next night on the opposite side of this ridge as they begin to climb the ridge the weather worsened and we can go back obviously and look at meteorological reports and understand there was a storm this day and the, the conditions would have been difficult yes thanks to the satellites that we <laughs> talked about in the, in the uh, cosmonaut episode anyways yeah go ahead so the the snow the snowstorms on that day would have been debilitating visibility right. would have been near zero so it, it's theorized and i think there's um, some evidence kind of here that we can uh, look at from uh, where they made camp and kind of how things break down here that they got lost they lost their way and they realized they were lost and decided to turn west towards the top of the ridge where they had begun. When they realized that they weren't going to be able to make their destination 
before nightfall, they decided to set up camp on the slope where they were. And this is a little bit of a point of contention, because remember where they cached the supplies down at the bottom of the ridge? At this point, it's about a kilometer and a half down the ridge. Okay. So the first question that kind of gets people suspicious about what happens next is, why in the middle of a snowstorm in these crazy difficult conditions did they decide to camp on an open slope in a storm instead of retreating down to the um, the tree line where they would have had cover and we knew there were supplies and things like that. Sure. Which would indicate to me, like from a rational standpoint, as the storm is increasing, you would expect like as it gets worse, somebody could have made a decision, hey, let's go back to the where all the supplies are. Yep. So what that indicates to me is that chances are that that storm came up in a big hurry. The storm the storm comes up in a hurry, but the thing that's interesting is uh, one of the investigators who was familiar with Delitov and kind of looked at forensically all the things we're going to get into. He said that in in their view, and people pretty much universally agree with this, that Delitov probably didn't want to lose the altitude they had gained because you know a kilometer and a half in like waist deep snow on a forty five degree incline. That's that's a lot of ground to regain if you go back down the hill. And also, the whole point of this expedi- expedition for the students was about certification and experience and becoming more experienced uh, explorers or hikers, whatever you want to call them. So it is theorized, and people generally agree, that they took this opportunity to practice camping on an open sure. slope, which is like a designed and uh, designated skill set um, that they had to demonstrate uh, now, in order for their qualification. Said- Something you just said is really interesting to me that they were hiking up a 45 degree incline. I just, I don't know if it was 45 degrees. That's important from a mountaineering standpoint. First of all, that's an incredibly steep slope. I actually, now that I think about it too, I've seen some of the um, digital visualizations of the cliff where people are trying to figure out what happened. It, 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 the whole point of this, and we're going to get into this later, is it yeah. actually isn't an incredibly steep incline. And that refutes some of the proposed right. theories. So maybe yeah, I... Sorry. Typical sorry, stupid, not stupid exaggeration. Just just roll <laughs> totally with fine. it, Jason. Yeah, just roll go. with it, no, Jason. No, no. I, I, mm-hmm. I didn't realize... Like, I thought that was the... Like, I, I assumed you had done the research because you're the only one who ever does on this show. <laughs> and I was just going to say, that's an interesting data point. But okay, if it was... Yeah. And if you thought it, things were interesting so far, Jason... Yes. They're about to get more interesting. So at some point on this night where they decide to make camp, between pitching camp and making dinner, something happened. Something happened that resulted in the deaths of all nine of the remaining members of the expedition. It was totally UFOs. <laughs> I actually don't I actually don't have UFOs in my list of proposed uh, theories here, but we can add UFOs if you yeah, want. I just but, I, on this podcast, I assume at this like Hitler anytime that there's something that's not yeah. explainable, it yep. immediately goes one yep. of those two directions. And I was just trying to lighten it up, you know, cuz we always go Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's fast forward here. I'm going to bury the lead a little bit. Let's okay. fast forward here. So that was on February 2nd. Okay. We're going to fast forward uh, to February 20th, which is the date that it was determined that uh, a rescue party or a search party would be launched for the missing students. Good Lord. So 18 days. Right. Because- In the Ural Mountains in February. In February. Okay. Yeah. Because they they weren't scheduled to return until uh, I think their uh, the date they had left at the their last checkpoint was the 12th or somewhere thereabouts, I think is the exact quote that Delitov left. What altitude were these folks at at this point? I don't know that. I mean, it's the rural mountains. You could, we could look it up, but I mean- The Ural Mountains? The Ural Mountains. <laughs> the rural Ural Mountains. Take that, Jason. They were in the rural yeah, they Ural Mountains. They were in the urban section of the yeah. mountains. Right, right. <laughs> So 18 days later, the, the search is launched, and on February 26th, the, uh, the search party finds the camp. In the camp, they, they find the group's tent 
or the three tents actually. They right. find the tents badly damaged. Three tents, ten people? No, nine, nine people. people nine people. Okay. They find they find three tents vacant and badly damaged. The campsite made absolutely no sense. No piece of evidence discovered at the campsite can be reconciled with the next thing that they find as they dig deeper trying to determine the fate of the expedition. Okay. The student who found the tent, who was part of the search party, said, quote, the tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty, and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. The tent had been cut open from the inside, and nine sets of footprints left by people wearing only socks, a single shoe, or barefoot could be followed away from the tents, leading down to the edge of a nearby wood. On the opposite side of the pass, so that 1.5 kilometers down, is where we start to get the first evidence of what- 1.5 kilometers, that's that's like 15 football fields away. It's a long way. Yeah. It's a really long way. At night- In a snowstorm, on a mountain- In in, in uh, February. Minus 30 degrees. uh, That's where I was going. Minus 30 degrees. I didn't know what the temperature Mm -hmm. was, but it's got to be like way sub-zero. So something something happened that caused- all nine of these people of their own volition in either barefoot without clothes on their own in the middle of the night in the conditions that we just outlined to cut themselves out from the tent from the inside and basically run for it. Right. And the tent was the tent was pa- there collapsed in, in, intact. Well, the, the tent was there, but collapsed basically okay. like the tent wasn't buried. That's this is an important point. So not buried visible on the top of the snow. Sure just essentially knocked over and sliced up from people cutting themselves out from okay. the inside. Okay. Another important point as we follow the treks down to the wood before we figure out the fate of some of the expedition, only nine sets of footprints. Members of the expedition were the only people who appear to have been there, at least according to the record. Right. So whoever was chasing them was hovering, is what you're saying. <laughs> well, that's what UFOs do, Jason. They hover. Okay. So at, at the forest's edge under a large Siberian pine, and all of the reports on this make the point of like really, really giving you the visual of this huge Siberian pine tree where they find this scene. And there's just something really creepy about that. like something like satanic about the idea that there's this one single really thick tree where all of this supposedly went down. The searchers found the visible remains of a small fire and the first two bodies. And on the tree, it was clear that either someone had been slammed into the tree or been trying to climb it because all the branches on like the lower part of the ex- the accessible part of the tree essentially had been cracked, broken, or ripped off, and there was human skin and flesh embedded into the bark of the tree. Like either they someone got, had like been they were s- clawing their way up. I was going to say climbing into in a panic, it. right? Or climbing in a panic, exactly. So the two. The- okay, so now I'm going from UFO to Yeti. Yeah, but we have no. <laughs> We have no. Yeah. Anyways, go ahead. We, we don't. We'll get to the Yeti, Jason. Yeah, yeah. Just relax. Just <laughs> sorry, relax. Sorry. So this were there were actually thirty uh, percent of the members of the expedition were named Yuri. Uh, so this is <laughs> this is two of the Yuris are the first bodies that we find here at okay. the foot of the tree. Uh, Yuri they, one and Yuri two. Yuri one and Yuri two. They're shoeless in the Ural Mountains. In the from... Ural, in the rural Ural Mountains. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they were shoeless, dressed only in their in their underwear. Um, and it, like I said, it was clear they had been trying to like climb the tree or there was some sort of like physical struggle. No shoes, no in shoes. your underwear, 30 degrees below. That's right. Zero Fahrenheit. Yep. 1500 yards from a tent. From their tent that they had cut themselves out of from the inside. I can't envision, like they were on the verge of death just on those facts by, alone. Yeah. Just by being yeah, outside yeah. of the tent. Yeah. So the search party doubles back from that scene back up to the camp. As they take a different route back up the slope between the pine tree and the camp. Wait, how found- many people go up? Nine. 
Oh, no, in the search no, party? From the search party, yeah. From the search party. I don't know how many people go up. Okay. Yeah, but in between the pine tree and going back up to the camp, the search party finds three more bodies. Um, so that was Delaitov, the leader, and two other members of the expedition, who died in poses that suggest they were attempting to return to the tent. So they had been down at the okay, at so the tree. All nine had run the right. 1500. That's what it appears. All nine made it to the tree line. Yards. And, and then, then three tried to go back up. Okay. And the thing that's interesting about these three, um, one, they obviously looked like they were trying to return. Right. One of them has a large, serious, probably not life-threatening, but definitely not great gash in their head. Something had cut them like impacted them, injured them in some way. Been and there. <laughs> gashed <laughs> them in the head. The other thing that is interesting is that um, they were found kind of punctuated. So they fell like one at a time. Some made it further than others. Wow. And they have this, – this group is the second most clothed. So these these three have some elements of clothing on, but it's mismatched. So some of them are wearing the clothes of the guy, the people who were found dead down at the tree – or wearing the clothes of people that we'll find later, or it's mix match in different combinations. So hardly anyone has their own clothes on. They're wearing clothes of other people okay. if they're wearing clothes. So something happened where they exchanged clothes or took clothes off someone who was dead to put it on. Right. Um, one of the ideas here is that depending on who was clothes or the combination of clothing they could get, they thought you put this on, run for the tent, try to get the sleeping bags and come back or something like that. But right. that's only speculation. Finding... Now Again, just as a clarification, the cache of supplies that they left was how much further behind this camp? This is in the general vicinity of where they cache the supplies, but the supplies are food. That's oh, not, okay. Yeah, so that's it not, it wasn't, why would you ditch no, no. a winter coat of in course. your supply no, 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 That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Got it. So, so far, so far we've found five members of the expedition. Finding the last four took some more time. It, it took about two months until the snow began to thaw. Well, before we get to them, so the, the three that were – apparently like on their way back to the camp right um what condition are they in like uh, so mm -hmm. how did they die we'll get more into their condition but it was determined by a coroner and the official record reflects that every member of the expedition died of hypothermia okay that is the cause of death for every person if you're naked at negative 30 <laughs> degrees fahrenheit for any period of like if enough time to run 1500 yeah. yards in the snow so in covered the snow, in water yeah uh, none of that uh, is, seems abnormal to me at all. Like, yeah. So the question is, what made them what do made that them get out of at the this tent. point? Yeah. Okay. So finding the remaining travelers took two more months until the snow thawed. Um, they were finally found on May fourth under four meters or thirteen feet of snow in a ravine seventy-five meters or two hundred forty-six feet. Because uh, I did all the math for this, <laughs> uh, so I could better uh, wrap my head around it. Further into the woods from the pine tree. The pine tree is really the spoke that holds this all together. Um, three of the four were the best dressed, so they had either like a pair of pants on or a shirt, um, and there were signs that you know they had either been back. Uh, just like the other group had either gotten clothes from the folks at the pine tree or gone back and taken it off their bodies. They seem to potentially have survived for at least a, a measurable amount of time beyond uh, the other members of the expedition. Okay. So, sorry, just clarifying the math. So they run from the tent, nine people. Right. Two of them die at the 1500 meter mark. Right. Three of them try to go back to the camp and die. And these four, four go deeper into the woods. Go deeper into the woods. Okay. That's gotcha. right. Yep. And so they're found in a creek further down into the woods. They died of hypothermia. It was determined by the coroners. But 
that may you and I don't have uh, degrees in um, I don't know what's a degree in to become a coroner. What do you get a degree in? Uh, Anatomy, I, I guess. I thought it was like a two week course. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, I'm totally kidding. So these two individuals allegedly died of hypothermia, but they had and they had clearly, and we can't we come to find that the other individual or many of the other individuals in the expedition had massive internal injuries. Two of the four who we find down by the creek also had massive external injuries. Two of them had their skulls crushed. All of them had broken ribs. One was missing her tongue. Two were missing both their eyes. And two of the individuals who uh, tried to crawl back up to the tent were also missing their eyes. One had their foot ripped off. And one had uh, a, a ripped and torn jacket uh, wrapped around some sort of other uh, uh, cut, just like the guy with the, his head cut. Something had like cut them or something. I'm being really specific about the kind of wound because the next thing that's really interesting is there is no soft tissue damage on any of the victims beyond what I've already outlined. So the one person with the deep cut, I believe it was on their ankle, and the one person with the cut on their head. But they had massive, massive damage to their internal organs. The coroner determined that the damage was so massive and so extensive, it's not something a human could have done to them without leaving abrasions all over their body. It was the equivalent of being in a massive car accident, like a, a 60 mile an hour car crash is, uh, is what the coroner equated it to. Okay. Well, now the UFO theory is out the door and I'm going full Yeti. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I'm just going to go over then. This, these are the things from that kind of recounting that I've given you. These are the things that we know. Okay. So I'll just list them out really quick and then we'll get into the theories. Okay. So we know all of the group died of a combination of hypothermia or fatal injuries determined by the coroner to be hypothermia, right. but other fatal injuries obviously apparent. We know that there are no indications of other people nearby, uh, apart from the nine travelers and another group that was on the mountain over 50 miles away attempting to do the same thing. So we'll get back to them, but there's another group on the mountain, but they're 50 miles away at this time and it's well documented that they were there. Right. We know that the tent's been ripped open from- Which instance. is roughly 35 kilometers. <laughs> <laughs> we know that the tent has been ripped open from the inside. We know that the victims died six to eight hours after their last meal. We know that uh, from the camp, it, we can determine that all groups left the campsite of their own accord on foot. So it was clear from the tracks they weren't they weren't like uh, running or being dragged. They left together like in a line in orderly fashion, quickly and scrambling, it seemed like. But they were on purpose leaving the tent. Right. Right. We know that – and this is interesting. On at least two of them, there were detectable levels of radiation, but only in their clothing. So two of the members who were found, and these are, I believe, among the two who are climbing back up the hill, their clothing was irradiated for months afterwards. So a significant amount of measurable radiation. Okay. So I grew up in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and have spent time in Aiken, South Carolina, where you know the Savannah River plant was. I've never worked at any of these places, but I, I grew up in that nuclear environment. I know what that means. How the hell is it that two of these people had irradiated clothing, but nobody else did? And no other part of the environment did, or none of their other possessions did. Yeah, that's a tough... That's really tough to reconcile. Now I'm back to aliens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really want to put this forward as a theory, because we, we know it definitively off the bat. Some people might be thinking back to the reindeer pee, pee drinking dudes right, right. Uh, as suspects. So uh, we know off the bat that the Mansi had uh, nothing to do with it. They had no reason or cause to want to hurt anybody. They weren't 
known to be in the area. They didn't have any of their belongings. They would have taken things. There's no indication that they were there. So the Mansies are are out. They were just off drinking reindeer well, pee. Well, that's really going to piss off the MAGA crowd. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, we also know that uh, when uh, all the documents related to the case were classified and weren't released until the 90s, um, some information was released. That's Par for the course in Russia, I was going to say right? that's straight up Soviet. Like right. that's – yeah, that doesn't shock but, me in the but least. But based on what they classified and what went out, it looks like there was a very intentional kind of effort to make sure nothing was released about the conditions of their internal organs. So this idea that they had massive trauma but not on the outside and only on the inside, there seemed to be a very specific effort to suppress that. And then the last thing we know is that there were no survivors. So those are the things we know. Uh, now I'll add in just two little quick pieces of what we'll call circumstantial evidence to give us the full picture, and then we can run through the theories, Jason. Okay. So we know, obviously, like I mentioned, there's another group on the mountain. We also know that there's that village uh, geographically adjacent that they left from. At this time- The rural Urals. The, the rural Ural <laughs> village where uh, Yuri is yes. uh, resting. Yes. Uh, well, one of the Yuris. One of the Yuris. <laughs> one of the Yuris is resting. Um, also, one of the girls is named Zena, which I think is awesome. Oh, that didn't work out well for her, but no. yeah. At or around or shortly after, the stories really conflict at this time. The other party, the members of the village and other people in the area report seeing in the sky lights, some sort of phenomenon taking place in the sky at night that lit up the sky and was not something that they had observed before and was obviously like weird enough that they paid attention to it and were like, what the hell is going on? And this is a quote. Case closed. UFOs. UFOs, right? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Here's a quote taken uh, by one of the inhabitants of the village uh, just down the foothills from where they set out. They described it as a shining circular body flying across the village, the size of a full moon in the sky, a disc surrounded by white light, which flew over the horizon and lit up the sky for minutes after it disappeared. So that's what it was observed. And this was reported both by the folks in the village and the second camp 50 miles away, kind of on the other side of the ravine. Okay. So that's all of the, that, that's all the puzzle pieces. That's what's out there. So now let's try to put the puzzle together. What could have happened? Jason, do you, what's your, do you have a leading kind of a theory or do you want me to get straight into them? Yeah. So my theories, like I said, uh, UFOs or Yetis, but at this point now, like there were no Yeti tracks and yet- there were irradiated clothing, which clearly is a, de a description of a UFO issue. So I think that the, it was actually a Yeti-driven UFO. I think that uh, <laughs> it's a well-known cryptozoological fact that Ural rural Yetis that eat Yuris don't leave tracks, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have a new tagline yeah. for the podcast. <laughs> Well, it's it's pretty much up to us to figure this out, Jason, because okay. after three weeks of investigation, um, authorities officially closed the case, calling the cause of death a compelling natural force. That, that was the official explanation of the Soviet government. That right. the the, uh, the expedition was lost due to the result of a compelling natural force. Case closed. Which is funny because that's exactly what I ascribe to the death of the Soviet Union. <laughs> <laughs> so, so since the Soviet Union didn't help us out, uh, the files were eventually declassified in the 90s. And these are some of the theories that have been uh, postulated and put forward <laughs> to help us try to make sense of perhaps history's greatest mystery. Excellent. So the first and most obvious explanation, avalanche. Right? right. It's, that's like the, the Occam's razor uh, yes. path forward here, that an avalanche took them out. Yeah. Um, and I've thought about that. And it seems to be the simplest thing that makes the most sense. It explains a whole lot about this case. 
except that I've never, ever read once in my entire life. Uh, and I read a lot. Radioactive about- avalanche. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so th- this is the trouble with the avalanche theory. The location where the incident occurred, it didn't have any signs of an avalanche having taken place. So an avalanche would have left like patterns or debris or a wider area. The bodies uh, would have been uh, found in different positions, different locations. And some of them might not have been found at all if they were buried uh, deep enough below the snow line where uh, the snow didn't melt. So just the position of the bodies, um, the condition of the site uh, found just 18 days later, there would have been, I think, more compelling and obvious evidence of an avalanche that the folks who lived in that area familiar with it would have said, oh, obviously this was an avalanche. Fair enough. But how long was it before they discovered these bodies? 18 days. Right. So I I don't know what the weather patterns were. I don't know what the snowfall was. It's not implausible to me that evidence of an avalanche wouldn't have been hidden. However, as you say, it's less plausible that they would have found the bodies if right. enough snowfall had covered all, the evidence of the avalanche. They were all on the top avalanche. of the snow, right? Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing that's interesting, and again, circumstantial, but there were over 100 expeditions uh, in the region since the incident. Uh, well, in that period of when people were actually doing this stuff out there. Now there's probably like McDonald's and shit out. Near right. the yeah, exactly. It's a yeah. strip mall. And yeah, yeah there's, all kind, there's all kinds of stuff. But none of them ever reported conditions that might create an avalanche or experienced an avalanche. So no subsequent expeditions ran into the conditions or an actual avalanche afterwards. Okay. So that's important to keep in mind. Um, also, uh, there's been, you know, some work done on uh, real like big enthusiasts uh, trying to get to the bottom of this, who have kind of like forensically recreated the terrain and computer programs and said, no, avalanche could never happen here. That wouldn't work. Right. Um, but I don't want to get into that nerdy shit. <laughs> um, also, a- an analysis of the terrain, and this gets into your point about the the degree of the slope. That's where I was This going. is exactly, yeah, yeah. I, I, and I, I should have uh, I should have anticipated your argument. <laughs> I'm very disappointed in myself. But the, the slope wasn't at the, it, it's not in the proper alignment to create an avalanche. Like right. the conditions don't exist based off of the incline of the slope. I mean, I, I, I hate water and I hate cold and you mix them together and you get snow. So I don't know a lot about this kind of stuff at all. Yep. But I, one little factoid that's always been bouncing around in the back of my head is that avalanches don't occur at a slope of less than about 30 degrees. Right. right? Well, obviously everybody knows that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then and then finally with this one, the thing that you know I thought of too is the footprint pattern leading away. Yeah. Everyone looked at that and agreed. Okay, they all got out of here at the same time and like in an orderly fashion, removed themselves from the tent quickly, but together. In the avalanche, they would have scrambling, running in different directions. Maybe not all of them make it out of the tent. So I think that's compelling evidence. This was too. another like these were at least moderately experienced mountaineers. The one thing that. Again, like I, I hate going on snow slope mountains. Like that's just not my thing. But again, one of those little factoids that I absorbed somewhere in my you know preteen years was if there is an avalanche, don't run away from it. You run left or right. It's it's the same thing as like swimming in riptides. Right. Like swim left or right. Don't swim against it. Don't run away from it. Or if there's a a, a Nabooian uh, stampede coming at you, that's you don't. <laughs> fall straight down as an obvious Sith Lord and in order to <laughs> intersect your trajectory with two with Jedi, you run, yeah, you run to the yeah. side yeah. away from the tank. Right. Okay. I just wanted to clear I just wanted to clear that up. Just proving your point from the top of the show that you need or you need to listen to every episode to go, <laughs> to understand what we're talking about. Okay, so that's that's everything that I can think of that kind of debunks the avalanche hypothesis that makes it not 
that makes it stupid. I'm calling this theory for me I, on its surface. It's the obvious answer. But when you really think about it, I'm I'm ruling stupid on avalanche theory. I'm less certain about that for the simple reason that there are such things as micro avalanches. And a lot of what you're talking about from an evidentiary standpoint doesn't preclude the idea that there was a very small avalanche that scared these people out of the tent and they thought there was a bigger one coming. So we uh, will we'll get to that. Micro okay. avalanche is uh, one of the possible theories. It's actually the most recent theory that's been proposed. So we'll close with that one. Okay. But there, there are some issues with the micro avalanche theory as well. Okay. All right. So the, the next theory we have on the list, uh, uh, Jason, I'm excited about this one because you've already mentioned it several times and it's uh, precedent on the show also. Once again, proving the point, you got to listen to all the That's episodes. Right. <laughs> uh, we have definitively proven on this show, uh, thanks to Dr. Andrew, that Bigfoot is real. Obviously, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, the Yeti, you know, all synonymous with each other. Clearly the same creature. That's how it maintains the genetic diversity. It I needs think they to have maintain. Thanksgiving dinners together. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So uh, the, the two compelling pieces of evidence for me on the Bigfoot theory that they were all killed by Space Bigfoot mm -hmm. uh, are that one, what we already talked about, if a creature such as Bigfoot does exist, it exists with such unbelievable camouflage, canny, and ability to conceal itself that obviously it would be able to get into the camp, murder everybody, and get out with leaving no trace of itself. The only explanation for its existence is that it is able to leave no trace of itself. Right. Except in terms of photography. And remember <laughs> that I told you that the there was expedition a camera, had a that camera. They took 33 pictures. And oh god. One of the <laughs> one of the expedition members who ran out of the tent didn't grab shoes, didn't grab clothes, was in his underwear, grabbed nothing else, but you know what he grabbed, Jason? Let me guess, the freaking camera. He grabbed his camera. Imagine something being outside your tent. Someone saying come see this, you're not going to believe it, or hearing a noise, or whatever may have happened, and thinking to yourself, the thing that's most important, even though it's negative 30 degrees outside in a blizzard, is I have to get my camera. Or, oh God, I'm being beaten to death with no external injuries. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not just the circumstantial evidence of the fact that he decided to grab his camera. There's a photo. There is a photo that was developed on the camera roll found around his neck. And... I've got to be honest with you, and this is all built off media stereotype. I recognize mm -hmm. that. But if you look at the photo and you had no context for what happened at the Lytoff Pass, you didn't know about it, no one told you anything else, and they just showed you this black and white photo of this massive hulking figure in the distance silhouetted against a tree, you would look at it and say, oh, that's a Bigfoot photo. <laughs> there is a photo on the camera roll of something that the, the silhouette can only be described as Bigfoot-esque. And, you know, you could then uh, connect the dots there and say, you know, if they were being stalked by something, if something was following them or something even ambushed them at that final campsite, uh, they would be trying to get a photograph of it. And one of the last photos, that's photo 32, and then photo 33 is the last one, and we'll get to photo 33. But that uh, that photo was developed on the camera roll, and uh, it's creepy. I'll say I've looked at it. It's creepy. So that's the Bigfoot theory. So let me ask you, was it more or less satisfying to you than the Bigfoot footage that we all know and love <laughs> from like In Search Of? Where the, the thing that was crazy about the uh, the most that most recent, not the In Search Of, but the Bigfoot footage, the really, really good deep fake that was done is that like right. media outlets carried it. And we're like, what is this? And like it was on the news, like every local news station everywhere had it. Yes. Um, Once again, ratcheting my opinion <laughs> of <laughs> like Fox News humanity's, affiliate. <laughs> yeah, humanity's ability to discern truth 
truth from fiction right. even lower. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, the 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 photo is creepy. I don't know if that makes it compelling, but it's 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 creepy. Um, and it was on the camera roll. And for some reason, this guy felt like we either need to get the camera to photograph what is out there, or we need to save the camera to preserve the photograph of what we've already seen. <laughs> so, Jason, what do you think? Bigfoot theory, stupid or not stupid? Again, given the evidence that you have presented, there are no other footprints. No other footprints. But remember what I said. If and unless like Bigfoot pees irradiated urine, <laughs> it's still like even that doesn't account for all of the evidence that we have. Yeah. So far, nothing accounts for all right. of the evidence in its aggregate. Right. Unless so maybe Bigfoot or excuse me, the Yeti and the aliens like both went after these people and like got into an, Space, an argument Bigfoot, themselves. Bigfoot, Jason, we've <laughs> talked about this before. Space, Bigfoot. Um all right. Well, it's up to you, listeners. You decide stupid or not stupid on the Bigfoot theory. But uh, I think we have we're we're too we have too much Bigfoot precedent on the show already. So I think I'm just going to leave this uh, one. Yeah, alone. yeah. We need to get our Bigfoot expert. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get Dr. Andrew <laughs> in here. The giant air quotes. <laughs> we'll get Dr. Andrew in here. All right. The next theory that uh, we'll ply him with some White Claw and get <laughs> get to the bottom of this. What did he say? <laughs> I'm drinking a Mingle White Claw, which should no way refute the fidelity of my argument. <laughs> Um, the next theory that has been uh, proliferated on Reddit and put forward by a number of uh, amateur and aspiring scientists is the infrasound theory. Do you know about infrasound, Jason? I, I'm actually very familiar with the concept. Yeah. So infrasound, sometimes referred to as uh, low frequency sound. And tell yes. me what I get wrong here. Oh. Descri- <laughs> I'm not sure if I actually can. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is a term used to describe sound waves with a frequency below the lower limit of human audibility. So most of the subliminal messaging, for example, that we put into this podcast exists at that lower limit. And we're just like controlling all of your minds and you've actually sent us all your bank account information and you just don't realize it. That's right. Yeah. The the thing that really got this theory on the infrasound turning is that this area has actually been studied before for the acoustics. The Oh, this is the part that I can't talk about. (laughs) (laughs) So the... This specific, the geography in this specific area does create um, one of the most compelling infrasound phenomenon known in the world. And we don't, there's not a ton of study on infrasound, but there is legit like academic study on infrasound, or maybe it's all classified and I just don't know about it. No, there is a ton of study on infrasound. infrasound. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That I just don't know about. Correct. But one of the, I don't want to, I don't know if it's a theory. I don't know if it's uh, established scientific fact. But if you look at the research that you can find connected to infrasound, one of the things that's asserted is that the sounds playing for as they affect humans, uh, you can't hear them, but they do affect you. Uh, this is the same reason they're created by these natural phenomenon by like earthquakes or tsunamis or sure. like a volcano. And it's thought that's how animals can tell that something's coming before it's coming. So you'll see like right before an earthquake or something like all the animals run and you say, well, how do they sense it? Infrasound is how we theorize that animals are attuned to it and can sense it. it uh, in- I think that's pretty well established from like a water-based medium, but yeah. in an air-based could be different. Yeah, okay. it, it, that's it's not mm-hmm. well understood. So that that's how it impacts animals. With humans, it's thought to actually create irrational behavior and paranoid thoughts. This is what the folks who are proposing the infrasound theory have put forward as it relates to the light talk. Yeah, yeah, well, this is tied into a bunch of conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesse Ventura is a big proponent of this kind of. Oh, stuff. I'm all in then. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> the, if the body's in, I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. It's at best. Not well supported by science. So 
analogous to the Bigfoot theory is what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 So the, the, the theory basically purports that because they were up on this ridge, they were in the direct path line of where the infrasound waves would have been coming through. Well, it, the fundamental issue with infrasound is it's really low energy. Really long wavelength. So there's only so much like dealing with microwaves and you know ultra all the all the frequencies that we deal with on cell phones don't seem to have really any impact on us at all. So these longer low energy waves, like how would that be a massive impact when things of much higher en energy don't really impact us at all the the theory purports that the the space between the summit of the two adjoining mountains created a funnel that pushed the infrasound wave through yeah wave propagation they, right yeah, yeah, yeah right they're right in the center they're in the epicenter of it they're in the the one spot you could be where the effects could be so exaggerated to have actually have the kind of impact that would cause the behavior we're talking about so the theory purports that the infrasound impacted the the expedition in a way that basically drove them insane, made their behavior erratic, and they rushed out of the tent not being able to control themselves. Once they got away and got down to the tree line, out of the line of the of the sound waves, they realized they were able to regain their composure and control of themselves, but by then it was too late. Well, again, the problem with that theory is the physics of wave propagation. Even if all of those dynamics were true, and it would be really difficult to imagine like that all worked out in a completely natural surrounding and there was the exact broadcasting that was happening. But if I grant you all of that, all it does is increase the power of a really low energy wave. It's still orders of magnitude less than what we deal with every day with, with cell towers and I, I'm not fighting with you on the infrasound theory, so I think we can say stupid I, on this one. Are yeah, you all yeah. in on stupid? Yeah. I, <clears throat> the idea of the Soviets at the time using like low wave generators in that area, I, actually, even that doesn't make any sense. It's in Siberia. Like the the only reason that from a military standpoint you would be using low wave transmissions is for communication with submarines or to test it out in a desolated and isolated area, which brings us to the next theory, the weapons test okay. theory. So the camp where the expedition made uh, its final stop is not in the exact pathway, but in the radius in the neighborhood of what is called the R7 ICBM missile launch zone, <laughs> which is okay. a great place to make a camp. Uh, that's definitely where you want to, uh, you know, you pop your tent. I hear Los Alamos was a great place to camp in the yeah. in 57. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so this gives us a little bit of an insight here on the, the, uh, on the radiation in the clothes, but that's only with two people. If they, like a nuclear blast went off in the area, um, everything would have been irradiated and the damage would have been extreme, severe, and impossible. There would to be no out. mystery here. Right. There would yeah. be absolutely no mystery. So uh, I don't think it was an ICBM, ICBM intercontinental ballistic missile. I don't think there was a nuclear, a nuclear missile test that is responsible for the demise of the expedition. But there was another weapons technology that the Soviet Union was testing at the time that, that could line up with some of the lights that people saw. And that was something called parachute mines that the Soviet Union was testing. So this is these are concussion or percussion uh, weapons that drop from parachutes, explode in the atmosphere, and then the percussion waves from the uh, explosion itself are what does the damage, the pressure it creates. Congratulations, man. I think for the first time in 20 six episodes, you've come up with a technology 
that I think is plausible that I've actually never heard of. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, parachute mines, uh, parachute mines uh, were a thing right. uh, that the Soviet Union had. And if you look at the science of how per- percussion mines, they're kind of like uh, depth charges, but for the air. Oh, no, right? it sounds very Soviet. Yeah, like, I so- totally believe that this was a thing. Right. So <laughs> imagine if, uh, you know, a plane flew over yeah. and uh, a bunch of percussion mines were dropped out of the air. The sky is lit up and you see them falling. You would run out and look at it and then they start exploding. And by then it, it's too late for the expedition. Um, this is where we get to frame 33. So we talked about the lights. We talked about things falling from the sky. The last photo taken on the roll, and you can't really discern what it is. The, the exposure isn't long enough. The camera isn't able to pick it up at in the low light environment that this photo was clearly taken in. But it's clearly taken of the night sky, and it looks like two distinct flares are falling from the sky. Like world, think World War One style where they like they shoot up the star flares mm-hmm. that like light the battlefield. It looks like something like that. And that's the last photo that's taken. Now it's not clear if that was taken that night or the night before, or there's there's no way to know. But it seems plausible here that, you know, something could have fallen from the sky. Perhaps uh, this technology that we know the Soviet Union was testing, it detonates in the sky. Um, the first one pops, everyone's scared, thinks it's an avalanche, runs out. And then suffers the effects of uh, the intended effects of uh, the parachute mines, and that explains uh, their injuries. So there are two things that come in, into my head on this. The first actually just has to do with having used film cameras to a pretty extensive degree in my youth. When you buy a roll of film, or you like, and I don't know what type of camera they were using. I don't like if these were plates, individual plates. Then no, it wasn't. I think it was. It was like a crank one. Like you have a film right. roll, you take yeah. the picture, so you crank it up. So it was a up. roll of film, right? And that meant that you had a certain number of exposures, right? But you always had a, a couple extra that you might get. You know, Kodak always would sell you a, a roll of, you know, it was a twenty-four exposure, but you, but might you have would 26 usually on get it. twenty-five, twenty-six. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know what camera these these folks were using. I don't know what kind of film that they had. But the idea that it was exposure thirty-three, mm-hmm. nobody sells a thirty-three exposure roll of film. Well, there, there are 33 photos. I've clicked through every – I've looked no, at every I'm photo. No, I'm sure that there are. But yeah. what I'm saying is it was probably – Maybe it's a second roll. Oh, so it's at least towards the end. That's what I'm saying. saying. It was oh, okay. probably like a 30 so roll or So you're not saying the photo is roll. fake. You're saying it was taken towards the end. Right. Because it had to be on the second roll. Right. But what happens is at the very end of a roll of film, the camera stops advancing once you get to the last expo- – like right before the last exposure. And when you open it, that last exposure gets light on it before you're able to roll it up and take it out. So I have seen this particular picture that you're talking about, and it's really just blotches of light on a black background. And that to me looks a lot like stuff that I saw in the dark room all the time with the last exposure of a film that you you took out in light. And it just, it exposes the very big light sources and nothing else. Okay. Well, that's so, a plausible. That that's totally plausible. It doesn't explain away the Bigfoot photo, but uh, that's to- right. no, totally no, no. plausible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bigfoot combing his hair on the yeah. next shot. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that that is the uh, kind of military test theory. Okay. And what I want to do is I want to combine that with uh, the next theory because I think they are related and can be codependent on each other. And that's the KGB theory. Ooh, the, yeah. You had my interest. Now you have my attention. Ding dong. Who's there? KGB. Get the door. I'm not answering. Answer the door. No way. It's the KGB. I'm not answering that. Yes, you're going to answer. I'm not going to answer. I'm not going to answer. It's the KGB. The KGB will fit for no one. (laughs) 
That's true. <laughs> All right, so the KGB theory. And so I, I think this directly connects uh, to my, uh, my military test theory. Okay. And there are two different tracks we can take here. Uh, we know at this time in the Soviet Union, and Jason, you know better than I do, but disloyal activities, activities contrary to the principles of the revolution were frowned upon. Uh, yes. Behind the Iron Curtain, um, and who are wh- which? What is the demographic that is particularly susceptible to having counter-revolutionary ideas? University students. <laughs> so, uh, some of the ideas that have been put forward, and this is this is track one. Um, I have two tracks here on how the KGB could have been involved. Is that uh, these students were counter-revolutionaries, uh, were free thinkers, pro-capitalist dogs uh, <laughs> that uh, ha- wanted to wear blue jeans and listen to Elvis music, and the KGB couldn't abide it. And so they took the opportunity when they were on this expedition to eliminate them. Sure. Or perhaps, you know, all of these uh, students were of an engineering background, the technical expertise. Perhaps they wanted to defect in some way and they had some plan uh, to keep going further in the expedition, that the mountain wasn't their uh, overall destination and they had planned some sort of escape, but doesn't seem likely geographically speaking. But yeah, these I was going to say. <laughs> these, are the ideas that have been, uh, this, these are the ideas that have been proposed uh, by uh, theorists. Yeah, so uh, the Urals are in Siberia. Yeah. And Siberia is notorious for being the place that Soviet citizens who were no longer wanted – or disappeared. Yeah. yeah. So, well, I didn't even think about that. So we have a we have a we have a standing precedent of disappearing disloyals in the rural Urals. Yes. Okay. Um, the other uh, the other possible mode of KGB involvement here is that perhaps there were weapons tests being done that the uh, the Russians couldn't afford for people to know about. So they had to eliminate the witnesses to the tests who uh, were not expected to be on the scene or. Perhaps they were expected to be on the scene, and this was an opportunity to test the weapons. So there's the three pathways as to how the KGB could be involved, but that's just speculation. No, well, and that third one actually wouldn't necessarily be the KGB at all. Like that's that's well, the that's KGB more would a... need to be involved in the cover up. Sure, You're right. Yes, yes, agreed right. with so, that. But the test itself would not have been KGB. The, the test right? wouldn't have been KGB, but you would have had to have KGB involvement to do one of two things. One, help cover it up, or two, guide the students there. And this is where we enter Semyon Voltolorov. Oh, man. Voltolorov. Semyon Voltolorov. You're going to have to spell that for me before I can correct your, your pronunciation. Well, I'm not sure I spelled it correctly when I put it in my notes, so you're not getting <laughs> Let's it. go with Voltolorov. Voltolorov. Right. Um, that doesn't sound Russian, but so let's he, go with it. He's the last addition to the uh, to the crew. So when they, when they set out, they weren't a 10-person expedition. Uh, they were a nine-person expedition that became a ten-person expedition that then became a nine-person expedition again because the uh, kid had to when the kid when yeah. Yuri, the other Yuri dropped out right. Um, I remember I said we would come back to him. Yes. Um, so Semyon was allegedly meant to be with another group that was going to attempt uh, to hike to uh, the Mountain of the Dead. But that group didn't show up. He got disconnected from them somehow. Um, and <laughs> was stri- they, they figured out what was going on. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, mm, no, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and he met up with the, with the students in route to the mountain and said, hey, can I join up with you guys and come on your trek? Because I'm trying to qualify for like ski master guide level three 
as well. And reluctantly, uh, the expedition accepted him, but the notes that they recovered from the uh, the daily periodical that was uh, published internally amongst the crew uh, seemed to be that he was eventually accepted into the group and um, was viewed as someone who was highly capable and knew what they were doing, and they were happy to have him along. But his addition is very suspicious as is the dropping out of the other expedition member. Um, so I'm not sure in, in terms of timing how closely it correlated, but it just like sets my spidey sense on edge that like <laughs> he joined in and the other guy dropped out. Um, and this guy uh, comes kind of out of nowhere and gets connected to the expedition and they meet the ill-timed fate that they did. And if it was just that, if it was just that, you know, he was kind of a rando who joined the club, probably not that compelling. But because he, the circumstances under which he joined the crew are suspect, people have looked into him specifically. And uh, he did perish with the group, like his remains were found, allegedly. Right. So he, if he was an agent, he didn't realize that this was a bad assignment. Right. Okay. Uh, it, or did he? Or was it all part of the plan? So we have photos of him. Okay. Um, his skull was recovered. And as part of kind of the forensic investigation that's gone on over the years, that skull has been taken, digitally scanned, and then superimposed over known photos of him. And it's a 100% match. So that skull seems to be connected to that person who allegedly had the name Semyon, oh geez, Semyon V. Right. Yeah, yeah Agent V. Agent so v. Agent V, uh, <laughs> it seems to be the person purported to be Agent V's skull. Okay. But- when DNA was taken uh, from his remains and then compared against known relatives of the person purported to be Agent V, not a match. Not the same guy. Wow. Well, in 1959, it's hard for me to imagine that like reconstructive surgery was that good. Oh, I should I, – I, no, I, I, I should point out that all of the remains and literally like everything connected to this uh, mystery, uh, once it got declassified and the Soviet Union fell and people could get access to it, yeah. it's now in a museum at that little town where they set out from. And there's like a Delitov Pass Foundation that this dude runs and like all the shit that was recovered from the site, it's all there. So these things are like in, they're like preserved in museums and that's how we got access to it later okay. in the 90s when everything was declassified. Well, that's fine. But the connection between the idea that this guy's face matches completely- Oh, so you're saying the photo he, might not have been- And his DNA does not match. But see, I could understand that I don't if it was like a- that works. If it was like a 70% match that you could say the photo wasn't good enough, but it, uh, it was allegedly a 100% well, match. of course, I, it always makes me nervous anytime that anybody does a statistical analysis and says there's a 100% match, right? Yeah. I got 100% of the vote. Yeah. Once again, that sounds very Hail Soviet. dictator. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, so he definitely suspect origins or at least suspicion connected to this guy. So and again, as you said before, a very Soviet thing to slip an agent into an expedition sure, no, like this. That kind of crap happened all the, all time, the time in really benign circumstances. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and so, to me, it is not inconceivable either that Agent V led them there for some reason, either connected to disloyalty or to make them human guinea pigs, and he was an unwitting victim of his own uh, clandestine activities, or you know he was connected to the KGP in some way, was there to steer them away from, make sure they didn't venture into some place they weren't supposed to be. But when they got lost and misdirected the storm, they ended up there. The weapons test happened and the military had to come in, the government had to come in and cover it up to hide their activities. And there's there's some interesting things. To, first of all, again, very Soviet. Yeah, and I was going to say that sounds really plausible. And, to, like, and the second thing is that the investigator who ends up eventually being assigned to this case for the whole three weeks 
uh, that it that it persists before the government says, "Cool, oh, so case a closed." Very thorough investigation. Yeah, very thorough yeah, investigation yeah, yeah. made the point that um, the local prosecutor, so like the Politburo member who was like assigned to the region, came and oversaw the autopsy of the bodies when they were returned, and then stayed in town for like three days after to review the report. And the investigator said, like in his forty-plus year career that he had been connected to it, he was not aware one once of the prosecutor ever showing up, much less staying in town for three days to oversee an autopsy. <laughs> um, so all the puzzle pieces Again, are starting to kind very of very Soviet, yeah, 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 very Soviet. So the theory here I'm proposing here, in combination with the military test theory, whether it be connected to a weapons test or some other uh, counter-revolutionary activities that uh, the expedition was used as guinea pigs or offed for some other reason. And the reason that the circumstances are so suspect and nothing adds up is because it was deliberately set up that way. So I find all of this far more plausible than the Space Yeti. Yeah. Like, the, <laughs> this is bar. starting to at least ring true. I, in my experience, though, dealing with Soviet ways of manipulating information, all of this seems completely plausible. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, and if they were accidentally irradiated and think about the fact that like their clothes were mismatched or they weren't wearing the right things, if I was trying to cover it up, I would say, okay, get all their irradiated shit and let's get it out of here. And maybe you missed one or two things or things so that you were swapping out got irradiated. Right. No, this was a huge issue for me. Why were only like two of these people's clothes irradiated? This is irradiated, the only explanation right? I can think of okay. that accounts for that. So that's where I'm at on it. I don't but, think this is this part's stupid. Right. But I mean – the way that the clothes were distributed is really confusing too. Well, if you were just trying to make chaos, like so chaos and confusion. I yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a that's a way uh, to go about it. And then if you want to, you know, add an element of the supernatural or like just really create confusions and misdirect people, then you do the other crazy shit that like has the elements of like you know, the dark side of this, which is their eyeballs are missing, their tongues are cut out. As we are living through in this very moment right now, the idea of sowing any disbelief in accurate uh, accounting of information is really virulent <laughs> and incredibly dangerous. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, hail comrade. <laughs> okay. So uh, stupid or not stupid so far on my uh, weapons test slash KGB involvement theory. I want to say stupid, but I'm having a real problem saying it. Yeah, <laughs> I'll take that. I'll take that for now. I'm gonna I'm gonna get you on the record, but I'll take it for now. And yeah. then this last theory is not mine. It's my least favorite. Uh, I hate it more than the, even the aliens one. This is the dumbest theory, and it's supposedly uh, the recently uh, determined definitive answer for what happened. Okay, at Delightoff Pass. Let's have fun with this. Uh, so this came out in January, actually, and it was uh, put out by. Uh, Communications, Earth, and Environment, which is the name of a publication that worked in partnership with National Geographic. Communications, Earth, and Environment quarterly or biennially? But I think it was biennially or millennially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This was the one story they got that century. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so here's, here's the background on this. One of the um, folks who works at Communications, Earth, and Environment, who's also a geologist or a scientist. Okay. Was watching... Well, now they have more credibility. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> They were uh, they were watching Frozen, the animated movie. Now they have less credibility yeah, with, let's, their, let's yeah, with their daughter, and they were particularly impressed by the uh, I haven't seen Frozen, but by the animation of I guess an avalanche or a snowfall in that movie. And they're like, that is incredible technology. And they went to like Pixar, or Disney, whoever makes Frozen, I don't know. And they uh, said, could you? They're the same thing now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> For scientific purposes, like, could you share your visualization technology with us that you use to like 
make that avalanche? And they said, yes. And the first thing they did was apply it to the Delight Top Pass mystery. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what they were able to forensically recreate with this apparently groundbreaking technology that like scientists couldn't come up with, but some graphic artist could, was what is known as the snow slab theory. And right. this is an idea that it, it wasn't an avalanche, but rather blocks of ice, essentially, that fell off the uh, cliff face above the camp, and they just got super, super unlucky, and those blocks fell and caused a, the micro avalanche. So like a, a, a small snow drift that they could have mistaken for a larger avalanche that uh, would have caused them to run away. Basically, everything that we outlined that explained like why the large avalanche theory didn't work, right. most of it applies to this theory too. Um, so this one has the most credence, I think, because it's the most recent and made a bunch of headlines recently because they came out and National Geographic was attached to it. Right. Um, but supposedly, this is the explanation that closes the mystery. But for me, I just think it's the most uh, kind of fab explanation and the most recent that the media has hyped up and people got excited about. I don't think this is any more compelling than the avalanche theory. So <laughs> first to turn this all back to me, a um, <laughs> hundred thousand years ago, as you said, like I've had a million careers and one of them at one point- Just tell me you were an assassin that used snow slabs as oh, your primary so method. So much of less interesting. <laughs> I was uh, a, a graphic artist at a video game company when a particular version- I did not know this about you. Yeah. Is this why you wanted to watch that? Fuck, what's the documentary we watched? What's the first video? Atari. Oh, the Atari. This yeah. is why you wanted to watch the Atari documentary because we were going to like see you in the background with like an afro in the hot tub. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I came much later. Like those are the games I grew up on. But no, I, I totally was the guy in the afro. Right? <laughs> um, but no, so I, I showed up at a, a company like I was doing hand-drawn animation at the time and found my way into a, a video game company through a friend of mine whose older brother owned a company and ended up they were asking me to animate stuff using current computer systems and I had no idea what I was doing. And then they, they brought in this whole new animation system that was the same system they used like to do Jurassic Park back in the 90s. And nobody really knew how to use like we bought all these systems, but nobody really knew how to animate it. And the way that computer animation was done at that point was basically building physics models. So you had to write in the programs that determined not just how the, the characters moved, but how light would react off of any given surface. So I ended up teaching myself physics because I had like failed out of that shit in high school. And I, I was teaching myself how to do that to figure out how to program these systems. So this idea of uh, Frozen being appealing to somebody who does this kind of research, like the model that you build as an artist, you know, there's there's a physics to it, but it's it's basically writing into the program tons and tons of variables. So the idea that this guy would watch that and go, actually, that models a big avalanche pretty quickly. I wonder if they've got it modeled to the point where I can change the variables in different degrees and see what would happen if the conditions were different. That makes a lot of sense to me. That doesn't make the theory not stupid. So that's not stupid to try to, you know, piggyback off animation technology to simulate avalanches. That right. doesn't mean he's right. Now, it goes back to the publication that we were talking about, the biennial. Communications and Earth Environment. Right. I have no idea if that's a peer-reviewed publication or not. If it is, then this becomes a What's little the, more interesting from, to me. Uh, they're the sister publication of uh, micro, Microbiology and Cellular Quarterly that right. did the Octopus <laughs> publication. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. So uh, it's an interesting concept and uh, it's not inherently throwawayable. 
to me. That said, I don't know anything about this paper. I don't know anything about the publication. So I'm I'm not going to say that these guys nailed it. Like, but I, say I that let's say they're right, and an ice slab did fall and like cause a micro avalanche. All of the plot holes that exist in the normal avalanche theory still apply to well, this theory. Right. It explains Besides, with the exclusion of the evidence of a large avalanche having taken place. It explains the damage done to the bodies initially where people were sustaining internal injuries and then ran away. That leads to the plausible explanation of how everybody froze to death while trying to set a fire and climb on a tree and getting, you know, blood all over their all over the tree trying to find things to light on fire. As they're freezing to death at negative, you know, 30 degrees Fahrenheit, it explains why three people might take the bulk of the clothes in an effort to try and get back to the camp while leaving people next to a fire, and then everybody just freezes to death. The four people who then go away, that's harder to explain, but none of that explains the irradiated clothing. Right. <laughs> There's nothing that explains all of it, except theory that it was chaos created intentionally. And that's why I'm saying not stupid on the KGB are the real cause of the demise of the Delaitov expedition. And here's my favorite part of this entire episode is that we started off with me saying that I have no problem. <laughs> shitting on the Russians. Shitting on the Russians. <laughs> yeah. And here we are at the end of it. I kind of agree with you. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so stupid or not stupid. Well, I don't even know if we should do stupid or not stupid here. What's the least stupid theory for you, Jason? The least stupid theory for me is that we'll never know. That there was something going on in the Ural Mountains having to do- The rural Urals. The rural Urals. <laughs> With the Yuris. With the Yuris and the Yetis. <laughs> and the Yetis. Um, the yummy Yuris eaten right. by the Yetis. <laughs> and this is one of the things that I've had difficulty you know, coming to grips with. You know, I've said for years that you can't keep a secret in the the, the federal government for, you know, between three people for more than 15 minutes. Well, this isn't minutes. the federal government. This is the Soviet government. Right. Yep. And I've seen evidence in the Soviet government. I've, man, even in the US government periodically, there are certain small episodes that are never documented and just disappear. Mm -hmm. And it was it, it's pending <laughs> a, a three week investigation. There's a great quote that says men do terrible things to each other and it's worse in places that are dark. And this was a very dark place. Like there was n there was no record keeping. Oh yeah, if you well the the records that and, and the records that are kept are disturbing. So in addition to the 33 photos that were on the reel you can go see, you can also see the photos that the rescue party took. Right. No eyeballs, no tongues, like right, faces right. skinned. Yeah, but after so much time had passed, like I can also envision that a lot of that came from like predators coming. But or no other visible through. forms of predation, just eyes and tongue. Uh, that I I I can't speak yeah. to. Right. <laughs> but the the counter to that is why did they leave any records? And again, my answer to that would be it's completely within the realm of my experience reading Soviet history, that not only did they do these brutal things, but they did it incompetently. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So where are you? Which we, we, I think we've done seven, seven possible theories, Jason. Right. Which one are you on? Which is the least stupid for you? I'm, I'm team KGB. No one expects the KGB. Man, I, I really want to say that it was a bunch of kids that made a bunch of really bad decisions. I can't explain the radiation in that that theory, I cannot in any way, shape, or form right off the KGB. Boom. We did it, Jason. We agreed. We agreed. Okay. Well, I think all that's left to do is cut ourselves out of this recording booth from the inside 
in our underwear and leave no explanation as to our whereabouts or fate. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time. <laughs>